hearts from the inside out. He is worthy of our praise. Can we unite in worship today? I was buried beneath my shame. Yes. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my dream.
dead things to life. Amen.
If you've experienced the life-changing love of Christ today, would you proclaim this over your life? Well, there's nothing better than you. Well, there's nothing better than you. in with that baggage, if you're having trouble letting go, if you just lift your hands and praise and then worship, surrender at the feet of Jesus here and now in this moment. He's available. And I lift my hands up, lay my whole life down, my whole life down. If he wants to encounter you today. I lift my hands up, lay my whole life down, my whole life down. He wants to change your heart. Would you let go? I lift my head.
church. All praise to the one who saved Isn't he worthy? He's rescued you. He's rescued us from darkness. He's my King of heaven, my King forever. Yes, he's worthy. Yes, he's worthy. Isn't he worthy? Isn't he good? It's in the midst of his presence, we proclaim your greatness. In all you are, Lord, my God. It's when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe display. Yes, my soul then sings my soul, my Savior God.
It's just like David who proclaimed how great you are. You see, David wrote in the book of Psalms, he says, Great is the Lord and most worthy to be praised. His greatness no one can fathom. You see, we hear those words. It reminds my heart that no matter how hard we search for the depths of our God's greatness of his goodness, we will never reach its limit. It's greater than our imagination can even picture. It can't be measured. And like David's words from thousands of years ago, this hymn is a proclamation. It's like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon or at the base of Mount Rainier or at the edge of a vast ocean and gazing in its awe and beauty and wonder while shouting, this is amazing. But as we stand in worship today and declare this with overflowing hearts to our Lord, these words reflect a reality that is even greater than the most awe-inspiring work of his hands. And this same God in all his greatness wants to meet with you today. He wants to speak to you today. Church, would you pray with me in this moment? Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you. That in all your greatness, you would choose to meet with sinners like us. That you would choose to call us your sons and daughters. Oh, we worship you. Most worthy of praise. Worthy of every heart. Worthy of our serving. Worthy of our following. Worthy of our surrender. We give this worship to you. And we ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear from you in your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. Hey, this is real. Worshiping the body of Christ. That's what we were made for. Well, welcome to second service here at MRCC. Would you turn to those around you make them feel welcome today? conference is based on Ephesians 5.33, where God commands the husband to love and the wife to respect. Now, we all need love and respect, but we asked 7,000 people this question. When you're in a conflict with your spouse, do you feel unloved or disrespected? 83% of the men said they feel disrespected. 72% of the women said they feel unloved. Again, we all need love and respect equally, but during conflict, we are as different as pink is from blue, as male is from female. And we discovered there's a correlation. Without love, she reacts without respect, and without respect, he reacts without love, and this baby spins on a crazy cycle. Do you want to know how to get off that crazy cycle? Sarah and I get on it almost every week, and we know how to get off of it. Do you want to know how to get off of it? Good morning. 
Last service, the mic wasn't on, so I was like kind of quiet. But it's on this time, so uh, I, I, you guys can all hear me. Uh, my name is Tyler. I am on staff here at MRCC, and I just am here to give a couple announcements. One of them being we have a love and respect conference coming up here at MRCC in May. If you would like more information on that, if you scan the barcode in the seat back in front of you, it will give you a, it will send you to a landing page and you can sign up for groups, you can sign up for teams, you can also sign up for all of the many announcements that I have to bring to you this morning. Coming up also in May is our men's conference. Pastor Dave and his team have been working tirelessly to uh, get all of the events scheduled and ready to go. It is going to be here at MRCC. If you'd like more information on that, scan the barcode, or you can just go to our website. Small group cycle begins next Sunday. Pastor Darius is going to be in the foyer signing up everyone for our small groups if you'd like to join. Pastor Brent is usually here doing that, but he's in Disneyland right now on vacation. So if you have his phone number, text him. <laughs> also coming up is our women's spring tea. Uh, we are looking for hosts for tables. So if you'd like to join in with that, they are in the foyer right outside the doors to get you connected as well as signing everyone up for that. Also, not this Friday, but next Friday, the 15th, we have our Good Friday service. Uh, Pastor Weston and his team have been uh, tirelessly working on that as well. Uh, it's going to be an awesome night. We would love for you to join us. Uh, before we get started today, we have two special things. One of them, he's going to get mad at me, and he told me not to embarrass him, but I'm not going to. Uh, 15 years ago today, uh, Pastor Greg... Uh, and his wife and family uh, decided to come to MRCC. So can we get excited about that? I didn't, I didn't embarrass you. 15 years ago today only seems like 30. So uh, it's, uh, no, I'm kidding. It's a cool thing. It's a cool thing. So thanks for that, Tyler. Uh, more importantly, uh, this morning, I want to invite Nate and Ashley to come up front. We're going to do something special together as a church family. They're going to bring little Chase with them, who is here this morning to be dedicated. Uh, they have asked for the privilege of dedicating him this morning. This is something we do as parents. It's something that Nate and Ashley choose very specifically to do with us this morning. And whenever we talk about baby dedication, we always remember a couple of things. First of all, we remember, and Nate and Ashley know this, this is why they're here this morning, that children are not an accident. They're not just the product of random biology. They are placed by God in our lives. And scripture says that he knits them together in mom's womb and places them in their home. And so Nate and Ashley are here this morning to, to recognize that Chase has been placed in their home by God. I always remember that story about Hannah who was childless and she cried out to God, give me a child. And he did. And to recognize that that child came from him on purpose. She brought him to the temple and dedicated him. And that's what, that's what they're doing this morning. The second thing we remember is that this 
this baby dedication is a real spiritual thing. Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple to have him dedicated, to ask for God's calling to be realized in Jesus' life, and they had no idea how big that was. And the same thing is true this morning with Chase. Chase may grow up and be your surgeon someday, so you want to pray for him, uh, right, this morning. <laughs> But they're here to dedicate him to God's calling for his life. And then they're also here to dedicate themselves to raising Chase to know God as his father, to know Jesus as his savior. And, and we're here to pray that blessing on your home and on your, your parenting. And church, this is, this is a moment for you and me not to just watch, not to just be kind of, you know, sentimental, although that's fine. But this is a moment to realize that alongside Chase's mom and dad, we are called to dedicate ourselves to Chase. Here at MRCC, we believe what Jesus taught, the children are the most important and first priority in ministry. And Chase is going to grow up learning who God is from us, from all of us, in children's church, in the foyer, in worship time, at camps. And so this is a dedication of mom and dad to raise him in their home in the things of the Lord. But this is a moment where we come alongside them and say, hey, as God's larger family, this involves us as well. This means God may call you to volunteer in children's church. Everybody say amen. amen. Say it like you mean it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But this is, this is us standing with you as you make that dedication. So we're going to pray and dedicate chase with you, under you, alongside you to the Lord. So step over here, would you, and just lay your hands on. And big brother, would you lay your hands on your little brother? Yeah, just lay a hand on there. That's all. Let's pray together, church. Father, we come to you this morning, first of all, giving thanks for the gift of a son, for the gift of a child. And we recognize, Lord, that he is no accident. He's not random. You place them here in this home with this mom and this dad. And God, we give you thanks for a, a gift beyond words. God, how could we ever thank you enough for placing a child in our hearts, in our homes? We give you thanks. And we, we come to you recognizing that he has a calling on his life, God, that he belongs first to you. We stand with Nate and Ashley this morning recognizing that Chase belongs first to you. And even as we give thanks, we lift him up. And God, we ask that you would use mom and dad, all of us, to help him discover and feel and know that calling that you have for his life. And then, Lord, we ask your anointing on Nate and Ashley as parents on their home, that you would fill their life together with your Holy Spirit, that Chase might grow up learning from mom and dad how great your love for him is. We pray for that. We ask your blessing on their home. We dedicate Chase to you, receiving him with thanksgiving, recognizing he belongs first to you, and committing ourselves to serve him to your ends. Bless this family, we pray. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that's cool stuff. That's good stuff. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, his big brother was taking that pretty seriously, which means he's probably got a big brother to watch out for, <laughs> or to watch out from, maybe. But uh, welcome to everyone who's joining us online as well this morning. We're thrilled that you're with us. It's hard to believe we're just two weeks from Easter. Uh, I want to invite you as we start thinking about Easter to start getting caffeinated because that's the morning that we rejoice. That's the morning that we celebrate. If resurrection is real, Amen. then what do we have to fear? We have nothing to fear. And that's the glorious message of Easter. Fellas, I want to challenge you as well, husbands, to take the lead in, in praying and saying, honey, let's, let's make an investment in our marriage at the Love and Respect Conference. I, I've been around marriage conferences my whole life as a believer, as a pastor, and uh, honestly, the Love and Respect one is the most meaty, the most nuts and bolts that I've been a part of. So I want to invite you to, to make that commitment to be a part of it. You can sign up at the guest center, uh, call the church, go online, whatever works for you. Grab your Bible, if you would, this morning, friends, and open it to Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 17. We're going to continue our journey together through Romans. As we get to the end of chapter 8, we're kind of going to wind up the first big main part of what the apostle is teaching us, and then in 9 to 11, move to another subject, and then into the home stretch of applying all those things. So as we get to the end of spring, we'll, we'll finish Romans. But this morning, we're in chapter 8, beginning with verse 17. And, and as you're turning there, like I very often do, let me ask you a question. And the question is this, when you're faced with something hard or difficult or challenging, something that's going to cost you something, how do you decide whether it's worth it or not? How do you make that evaluation of whether it's worth it? Life constantly confronts us with this question, is it worth it or not? To put in the time, to put in the effort to aim for that goal, to pay the price, whether in time or money or, 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 or effort, how do you decide whether it's worth it? I ask a woman in labor if it's worth it to give birth to her child, and she'll say yes. Eventually, she'll say yes. It might take a little while, but she will get there to the point where she says yes. How do you decide whether it's worth it? I, I came into the office one day this week and uh, I had my, my arms full. I think it was Tuesday morning, maybe Wednesday morning. I had a, all my stuff that I usually bring to the office. And then I had a big breakfast smoothie that my wife made for me. And as I came in the front door of the office, being an idiot like I am, I, I tripped and the smoothie went all over the door, the floor, myself, my bag. I just, you know, you ever feel like an idiot? I felt like an idiot. I feel like it regularly. It's commonplace in my life. But everything just went everywhere, all over me and the door and the floor. And I was like, why am I so stupid? But in the moment that that happened, our church secretary, Wendy, was right there at the desk. We were the only two in the office at that point. And, and she just jumped up and said, oh, Pastor Greg, I'll take care of it. I'll clean it up. I'm like, no, you can't clean it. My mom taught me I clean up my own messes. I got to do it. But before I could even put my stuff down, she had ran down to the storeroom and got towels and came back. And she was cleaning it up. And I'm, I'm feeling all kinds of bad. I'm thinking, no, that's my mess to clean up. And I'm thinking, wow, you're amazing. Your servant heart is so huge. You, you do this so quick. And just about the time I was thinking that, I said, oh, Wendy, thank you so much. And she said, ah, oh, it's no big deal. I'm used to cleaning up after my four kids, so you're just one more. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to take that, Wendy, you know, except to know 
that in her heart, she thinks it worth it in moments like that to get up and serve. How do you decide what's worth it? And lots of times we walk right by messes. We say, oh, it's not mine. It's somebody else's. It's not my problem. But sometimes we make a different choice. How do you make that choice? How do you decide what's worth it? As I said, you and I are always facing this question. It gets more serious as we grow up. Should I sign that mortgage for 30 years in order to own a home? Or, or should I rent instead or look for some other opportunity? Is it worth it? Should I go back to school? Should I go retrain myself for, for another career and put in all the effort and accrue the cost that goes along with it? Should I switch jobs if it means moving to another city and pulling the kids out of school? Is it worth it? Will it be worth it? We face those kinds of choices all the time. Should we trade one freedom for another when life calls us to it sometimes? Is it worth it to deny myself in order to follow Jesus? Is it worth it? to listen to country music when I know it's not good for me. Is it worth it? Is the payoff? I'm kidding, as you know. Sometimes that question, sometimes that is it worth it question, it gets really intense and serious. Is it worth it to keep struggling in this marriage? Is it worth it to keep wrestling with this teenager through this difficult part of their life? Is it worth it to tell the truth at work and, and suffer the consequences when I could say nothing and nobody would know? Is it worth it to, to suffer in silence when I'm treated unjustly, when I, I could get revenge and I, I know how? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to forgive that person who really hurt me. Friends, this morning, God wants to talk to us about that question, about that reality. It's what's on Paul's heart as he moves to the last part of chapter 8 here. And can I just say this right up front? God says it's worth it to do things his way every time, no matter what it costs. God says that you will be the first to say it's worth it in the end when you choose to do things God's way, even when it costs you, even when it's difficult, even when it's demanding. The decision to turn away from sin is worth it. The decision to seek to be good, and to give, to serve, to forgive, no matter what it costs us, God says those moments are always worth it. One of the things Jesus said repeatedly was this. Listen to him as he speaks to us this morning. Jesus said, if anyone, raise your hand if you're anyone, that's everyone. If anyone would come after me, he, she must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life, whoever wants to preserve his life as if it's an end in itself, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Luke says, will save it unto eternity. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, understand this. The cost of following me is worth it. The decisions involved, the price you pay to follow me, it's worth it. Infinitely 
worth it in the end. And that's what he wants to talk to us about this morning. You know, following Jesus is sometimes spoken of as if it's the road to the easy life, the successful life in earthly terms. But, but nothing, friends, could be further from the truth. Just like joining the military or humbling yourself to ask for forgiveness or giving money to charity, following Jesus is a decision about what's worth it. It's a decision that says, you know what? If I trade this, I know that what comes back to me is infinitely more worthwhile. When we sing of God's worthiness, when the psalmist speaks of it, when the prophets cry out, God, you are worthy, that's what they're saying. They're saying, God, you're worth what it may cost in the short term in my life in this moment. And this is so important because when we get confused about this, friends, we become vulnerable to discouragement and depression and despair. Let me say that again. When we forget what's worth it, we become vulnerable to discouragement and depression and despair. And, and, and worse than that, we lose the courage to obey God when it's hard. We lose the courage to obey God when it's demanding, when it costs us. Jesus said that following him will involve the death of a deep part of you and the coming to life of an even deeper part of you. And that's what's on the apostle's mind here in Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 17. Let, let, let's listen to what he says. Just to take us back for a week, ha having showed, as we learned last week, that the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives proceeds directly from the way we relate to God in Christ. We call God Dad, Abba, Father. We cry out to him with intimacy as well as respect. Having said that, then Paul says, verse 17, now... If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, I want to invite you to circle the word heirs there because it's incredibly significant. It means that we have something we haven't received yet. An inheritance is something that belongs to you, but it hasn't been received yet. It's no less real for not having been received yet. It's yours. It's tangible. It is a thing, but you don't have it yet. It has merely been assigned to you. And Paul says that as followers of Jesus, as believers in him, we are heirs. We have an inheritance. Dwell on that for a moment. You know, when I was in the Marines, I, I had a friend, I've mentioned him in different contexts before, but this buddy of mine had a dad who was filthy rich. He had multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. He was quite a wealthy guy. And my friend was an inheritor. He was an heir. But his dad had said to him, hey, before I turn over your inheritance to you, I want you to serve your country for four years. And so my friend had joined the Marines. And we found ourselves barracks in the same barracks sharing life together. And, and what I always remember about him is he had a very different attitude than most of us about what we went through. He'd go, you know what, this sucks. Oh, well, <laughs> in just a little while, I'm going to get out and step into an inheritance. I'm tired. My feet hurt. This is hard. Oh, well, at the end of it, I'm going to step into my inheritance. And then he would laugh, and we would hate him for it. You know? <laughs> but at the same time, we understood what he was feeling. Wow, yeah, everything here would look different if I knew that. 
you know? And, and it was an amazing reality to watch him experience. Yeah, stuff would be hard. He kind of became the joker in our platoon. Yeah, we're all just hating it. And he would go, well, you know, then again, I got an inheritance. And we would all laugh and throw things at him. God intends, friends, for you and I to feel that, to live like that, to be aware of that reality. In other words, whatever you have to go through in the meantime is worth it because you are an heir. Because you have an inheritance. That's why Paul goes on in the very next verse, verse 18. Look at what he says. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Wow. You know, a lot of us have got some real suffering, some real hardship, some real difficulties and trials. Some of my friends have been through unspeakable things. And I've had my share of downs. But what God says is, hey, Greg, the inheritance that I have for you, when you see it, you will be the first one to go, oh, man, it's way more than worth it. It's not even worth comparing what I went through. What we had to go through is so great that it's not even worth comparing. Friends, listen, if God is your dad because you've received his son Jesus as your savior, then you are an heir. And God calls you to, to fix your eyes, your heart on that reality. You have an inheritance. And your inheritance makes hundreds of millions of dollars look like a sack of hot dogs. It makes it look like a big nothing. Your inheritance has more zeros in it than a Mariner's box score. And that's saying something. <laughs> that's saying something. It's so great. And you're meant to fix your eyes on that. My friend Chris, he just knew it. I remember one night we were in the barracks and we were all sitting there and we had this discussion, you know, as we sometimes did. And then we were laying in the dark and all of a sudden he just started giggling. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow, that is, that's what it feels like to have an inheritance. God wants us to know that we have an inheritance Listen to what Peter says over in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us, note given, given, it's a gift. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade, kept in heaven for you. You know that feeling you have when you've bought something for your kids and you're looking forward to giving it to them and you can't wait and it's something significant and you, you feel joy as you think about that day? That's how God feels about you getting your inheritance. He's looking forward to giving it to you. He's got it because of the joy of giving it to you. And he says, this is real. Now, Hang on here for a second and understand that an inheritance, by its very nature, is something that is yours, but you haven't received it yet. Dwell on that for a moment. It's something that's yours. It belongs to you, but you haven't received it yet. The fact that you haven't received it doesn't mean it doesn't belong to you, doesn't mean it isn't there, doesn't mean it isn't coming. It merely means that you haven't received it yet. 
So many people judge themselves or each other in terms of what we've received now, but that's a mistake. God says your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's part of the more real that lies beyond the less real. Hey, newsflash, look around. All this stuff is temporary. All your problems, somebody say amen. All your stuff. All, all, all of your challenges, those are temporary things. Gang, you are one heartbeat from eternity, and so am I. All of us are. We're right on the edge of reality. And God says, in that greater reality, your inheritance awaits you. And you're meant to know that, to look towards that, because of how it affects you here and now, just like my buddy. Because of how it affects you here and now. It is more real than the less real that surrounds you. I have a, a high school friend who, who, whose mission in high school was to gain admission into the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. Now, that's a hard thing to do. Only a very few people from each state get an appointment to one of the military academies. You've got to do a ton of stuff. You've got to get a congressman or a senator to endorse you. There's only X number for each state in the nation. It's incredibly competitive and... My friend, Kevin, he set out to gain that admittance, that appointment. He was a year behind me, so I left and went into the service and only found out later that he actually did it. <laughs> he got that appointment. I thought, wow, good for you, Kevin. And, and he went off to the Naval Academy. But let me tell you a story about my friend, Kevin. He was sometimes too smart for his own good. <laughs> and Kevin got into the Naval Academy, and about a year and a half into it, he somehow figured out how to hack the Naval Academy computers. This is a true story. This is back when computers had tapes in them and floppy disks and all this kind of stuff. And he figured out how to hack into it and change his grades to make them a little better. When I heard that that had happened, I thought only Kevin would be able to do that. But he did it. And as is always the case, he got caught. And the next thing I knew, I was hearing that Kevin was going to be thrown out of the Naval Academy, obviously, for breaking the, the character requirements. And, and then I found out that they actually had a program to redeem. And the program looked like this. They came to Kevin and they said, we can throw you out today, or you can choose to become the lowest rank in the Navy, what's called an E-1, doing the lowest, in many respects, many estimations, lowest job in the Navy, the bosun's mate. They do like all the, the lowest jobs on shipboard. He said, you can choose to become one for a year. And if you make it through that year, at sea the whole time has to be an at sea billet. If you make it through the whole year, you can reapply to maybe get back into the Naval Academy. I thought to myself, Kevin doesn't have a chance. I know Kevin, he can't do that. First of all, he's not going to make that choice. Second of all, even who does, he can't do it. I remember thinking to myself, that's just not going to happen. That's just not Kevin. Then I found out that he chose to do it. And I thought, they're just going to chew him up and spit him out. They're going to eat him up out here in the real world. You know, He's not going to make it. Then I found out that, in fact, he did. He spent that whole year without uh, the opportunity to get promoted, without the opportunity to escape the lowest jobs, with everybody on the ship knowing why he was there and what he had done. He spent the whole year on a frigate in the Mediterranean doing the lowest jobs on the ship. And then he got admitted back into the academy and he eventually finished and graduated. I remember thinking, wow, Kevin, that's awesome. 
And then thinking, that really says something about you that you were able to do that. Now, here's the thing. That was a, a wickedly difficult ordeal. But when I talk to Kevin now, I learned a few things about that ordeal. One is that during that year, he met the woman who would become his wife. He married her. They live in the south of England now. And when we get to go to Europe, we always visit them. He's got a little girl. It's pretty cool. But I also hear Kevin say this. You know what, Greg? It was worth it. It was worth it. It was lame. It was awful. It sucked. But it was worth it. I'm glad that happened. God says, that's how you're going to feel. Your present sufferings, those things you think are so overwhelming, your hurts, your pains, your stresses. God says, the day is coming when you're going to say, that was worth it. Because your inheritance is not worth comparing to the difficulty. In other words, to put it another way, your life looks totally different when you stop asking God why and start asking whether your pain or grief or hardship is worth it. Let me say that again. Life looks different when you stop saying, why, God? And instead you start saying, God, is this worth it? Because when you ask that question, his answer is, oh boy, yes. And you will be the first one to say so. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle says that our light and momentary afflictions are working for us a great eternal weight of glory. It's the same idea. Your inheritance is not worth comparing with the difficulties. God invites you to grasp that. I love telling the story of Columbia University, which is an intense Ivy League academic school that also has a football team, and it gets crushed every time it takes the field. They get beat like a drum because they don't really care. And their fans, though, the fans at Columbia University have a chant that they've perfected, and while they're getting beat 52 to nothing, they chant together in unison, that's all right, that's okay, you'll all work for us someday. <laughs> And it's real because they're looking forward to what's ahead. God says, your father says, that's what he wants you to do. If you're a child, you're an heir and your inheritance is beyond words. Its value is so great that when you come into it, you'll go, that was worth it. I often wonder if my buddy Chris, who I've lost touch with, <laughs> I often wonder if he looks back and goes, you know what, those four years in the Marines, that wasn't worth it. I don't think so. He's going, wow, and then I came into my inheritance. God wants us to recognize the same thing. God wants you to understand this morning that you are an heir if Jesus is your Savior and that you'll be the one to say it's worth it. Now, when you're an heir, you aren't living totally for right now. You're living with one eye focused on the future. And that one eye governs your choices and your decisions in the meantime. And it even governs your attitude towards them. Our world is filled with silly, juvenile, demonic ideas to the contrary that suggest that now is all there is. And if you don't go for it now, if you don't grab it now, you'll never know it. God says that's a big, fat lie. He says, no, 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 no. Keep one eye on the future because the future is coming. The lies sound like this. You only live once. Go for the gusto. God says you don't only live once. You live forever resurrected unto eternal joy or shame. That's a hellish lie. Our culture says things like, it's better to burn out than fade away. God says, no, it's not. That's not how you raise kids. 
You raise kids by being faithful day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out. Our culture says things like live for today because tomorrow is never coming. God says, of course it's coming. Don't be stupid. You're not in middle school anymore. Live like it. Behave like it. Our culture says stay the night, baby. We don't know what tomorrow brings. Yeah, we do. It brings consequences, brings regret, brings complications. When you know you have an inheritance, your eye is fixed forward on that, and everything in the meantime is affected by that. And that's what God wants for you and me. Here's the truth. This world as it is can't satisfy you. And you as you are can't be satisfied by it, which is why God is parenting you. And which is why he wants you to look forward to the redemption of his world. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verses 19 and following. He says that our world is beautiful but broken. He puts it this way. He says the creation, we might call the creation nature, mother nature. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, to be fully brought into their inheritance. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. Remember that word hope doesn't mean a thing that might happen. It means a thing that will happen in the future. In the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That is transformed and redeemed along with us. We know that the creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, the world has lost its ability to satisfy us because of sin, so don't look to it to satisfy you. Instead, look to the redeemed world that is coming recognizing that it can and will satisfy you. And this is a process that has already begun, which is why you sometimes say to yourself, I'm ready to be done with this world. Somebody say amen. I'm ready to go. Jesus, would you come back today? Could you hurry it up? I'm ready. I'm ready to move on. That's a sign of health. It means your eyes are on the future. It means you're looking for it. It doesn't mean you're disengaged here and now. No, no, it makes us redeemers here and now. But it means we're focused forward. Interestingly, in this passage, we don't have time to get into it, but creation, nature, is anthropomorphized in this passage repeatedly. In other words, spoken of as a person, as if it has personality. You know, it's actually from this passage that the idea of mother nature grew up, not as some independent pagan worship of something other than God, but as a recognition that nature is a living thing beyond our understanding that it is being redeemed along with us. Don't make too much of it, but recognize the reality that is there and that our relationship to nature should reflect that. But also realize that God calls you to look forward to that redemption so that you find the courage to do what needs to be done, what's good and right here and now. I remember First time I blew up one of my knees playing basketball. I um, actually had five major knee surgery from basketball, which shows you that I'm not very smart. I never learned. The first time I had it, I thought, oh, no, I'll never be able to play again. That'll be the end of it. And my doctor, I remember him saying, oh, no, Greg, you don't understand this. He says, actually, if you work at it, the knee will be stronger than it was before. And in fact, you'll become a better player. He was a basketball player as well. I thought, yeah, whatever. Then I went into that year of rehab, but when I came out of it, I began to discover that he was right because I had learned to do things differently, not just one way, but other ways. 
And I, I actually got better after the knee recovered. And I remember thinking, wow, that's amazing. God says the same thing is going to happen to us, and the wait is worth it. That's why Paul says, verse 24 and 25, in this hope we were, past tense, saved. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he, already, what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, then we wait for it patiently. In other words, when we look forward, we live differently. Are you looking forward to your inheritance? It's real. So the only thing lost if you don't is your joy in the meantime. And God wants you to have that. He wants you to feel that. What's more, he wants you to know that in your hard times, in your difficulties, in your suffering and struggles, he's helping you in ways you can't even understand. That's why the apostle says in verse 26 that the spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words can't express. In other words, he, 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 he intercedes on our behalf. He works for us. He helps us in ways we can't even grasp. There aren't words for it. Anybody who's a parent knows what it feels like to want something for your child that, that's almost beyond words. I remember when our son was young and he had a habit of mistreating his friends. And I remember thinking, oh, I, I wish that he could learn the lesson of valuing those friends instead. And, and I remember just wanting that for him so deeply. And then one of those friends had had enough and told him off and moved down the road. And I realized as in my son's brokenness that he had learned something precious and worth it. And I thought to myself, you know what? One of these days, he's going to go, you know what? I'm glad I learned that lesson. It was worth it to learn that lesson. The same thing God wants us to feel and know. To put this very simply, and we're almost done this morning, we, we look at now differently when we know that we have an inheritance. You look at now differently. That struggling marriage, it looks different. That difficult season of parenting, it looks different when you know that it's worth it in the long run that you will be the one to feel that it's worth it. You know, sometimes believers think that suffering means they're not doing something right. They figure if they were doing everything right, there wouldn't be any suffering or hardship. Friends, that's just crazy town. That's nuts. That's not the gospel. That's a fake gospel. The real gospel says your struggle is worth it. The real gospel says that God is profoundly at work in your suffering. That's why Paul said, we talked about a few weeks ago back in Romans chapter 5, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. What price can we put on those lessons that we learn? That's why Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and so becoming like him. Yeah. That's why Jesus said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Take up your cross for whoever loses his life will find it. Even in the midst of Jesus' sinless life, his suffering was real and used by God, which is why Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. You know, just to kind of put a cap on this, friends, Jesus accomplished his greatest work in a moment when he was screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he said on the cross as he saved me and as he saved you. He felt overwhelmed. 
He felt the difficulty, but he also chose to go there because he knew it was worth it. Because he knew the inheritance that lay ahead of him. Which is why the author of Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And God says, hey, that's, that's for us. That's for us as well. When you know that inheritance is there. Paul finishes this thought by saying this, verse 28 and following. He says, so we know that in all things, in whatever you're going through, whatever I'm going through, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, that he might be the first inheritor among many heirs, that he might be the example for us. Friends, understand that when you recognize what's worth it. It changes you in the meantime. And that's what God wants us to feel. In this spirit, the apostle finishes. Here's where we wind up. He says, verses 28 and following, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He doesn't say those things won't happen to you. In fact, those things were happening to his audience at the time. And those things are happening in our world at this time. But none of them can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. None of them can separate us from our inheritance. I have a new saying when somebody complains. I say, well, you know what? At least we're not being shelled by Russians. <laughs> right? But even that can't separate us from the inheritance that we have in Christ from the love of God that's in Christ. No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. The inheritance is ours. The inheritance is yours. And right here this morning, as we get ready to close, God wants to fix your attention on it. Let me tell you a story, and that's where we'll finish. Helen Rosavari was a doctor who worked for many years, decades, as a missionary doctor in Congo and Zaire, among the poorest and most disadvantaged tribal people in Central Africa. She never earned the big bucks from being a doctor, from the degree that she labored to obtain. Instead, she lived a life of poverty. She was several times beaten and tortured by rival tribes who resented her willingness to serve their enemies. She was attacked and intimidated because she crossed racial lines to serve sick and injured and diseased people. Once, she was even abducted by a death squad that told her they were taking her to be executed for her so-called crimes. And in that night, in captivity, in a windowless room in the dark, she later wrote that she came to fear that maybe it wasn't all worth it. She said, I wondered if God had forsaken me. In other words, she felt like Jesus did on the cross. But later, she says it was in that precise moment, in the dark, facing death, 
when the spirit of Jesus spoke to her more clearly than ever in her life. She said, he said to me, Helen, 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of following me. This is it. Dying for the right thing is the privilege. Giving your life away for the right thing is the privilege. Do you still want it? I'm still offering it to you. These are not your sufferings. These are my sufferings. I'm asking for the loan of your body. Don't be afraid. I'll give you a better one. But can I have this one? Can I have you right here and right now? In that awful moment, when the Spirit of God asked her that question, Helen said the privilege of serving him utterly overwhelmed her. She said, with my whole soul, I said yes. She says, I've never known such peace. I've never known such joy. In captivity, facing a death squad, I've never known such freedom. She said, as it turned out, I was rescued in the early morning, but the rescue didn't put an end to my sufferings or the wickedness or cruelty or corruption, the humiliation, the hatred. She said, I continued to face it as I continued to serve. It was all there, but it was also completely different. Because that night, I decided it was worth it. That night, I decided it was worth it. Jesus invites you and me into the same moment. He invites you into that moment. When you see your inheritance, you'll laugh at what you thought wasn't worth it. And you will see it. The only question is whether you'll fix your attention on it here and now or not. God's inviting you to do that. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And the truth is, Lord, that Sometimes we don't pay attention to what you tell us about our inheritance. We forget what you're holding for us, what's kept in heaven for us by your hand. And when we forget that, Lord, we lose our courage. We lose our fortitude. We lose our guts. Sometimes we lose our faith. Help us instead to hear you telling us not only do we have an inheritance, but it's not worth comparing to what we're going through. Send us out like Helen, willing, willing, because serving you is worth it. Because the privilege of sharing in the fellowship of your sufferings is so profoundly worth it. Jesus, make us like you, who for the joy set before you went to the cross. Teach us to do that in our marriages, in our families, at work, in our church in our nation, in our world. We pray for that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, friends? How differently would your life look if you compared it to your inheritance? I mean, the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you throughout this week. Go with God. Tell someone you love them. Have a great afternoon.